Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I hope you enjoyed our opening music. It's called Clearing Call by the Mark Arneson Band, and feel free to download that on any of your favorite music platforms. Uh, Mark and his band just do a great job, so there's lots of great music that they have out there for you. Also, for those that are new to our show, Alzheimer's Speaks Radio is about sound information, not just sound bites. And I created this show because my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I thought there had to be a better way to connect people to services, products, tools, and information, and um, just life stories in general to support us all. So our goal is really to raise all voices all around the world. That includes those diagnosed, family members, those that care and serve for them, advocates, researchers, and so much more. Now, today we are live, and so you can call in, and that number is 323-870-4602. That's 323-870-4602, and we just ask that you, you know, stick with the topic here that we are talking about, and uh, I will be introducing our guest shortly. I'm really excited to... uh, to have her on the show. Uh, she is an author and has written um, just a fabulous book that I think everyone's going to find fascinating. But before I introduce her, I always like to do a few shout outs. And so um, one, I have to do a shout out for the um, Memory Cafe directory. Uh, a lot of those are starting to go live again, though many are still virtual. But you can find more information by going to the memorycafedirectory.com. Again, those are gatherings for people with dementia along with their uh, care partners as well. You can also find them on Dementia Map, which is a global resource directory we just kicked off here not too long ago. And that is free access to anybody 24-7. You don't have to sign in. There's no password, no personal information. Um, But our goal is to gather resources, products, and tools for you to be able to to grab, you know, at your leisure. I know what it's like being a uh, family care partner and, you know, you want what you want when you want it. And a lot of times we don't even know what it is we want. And so the resource directory will help guide you with that. It also has an events calendar and more there. Um, Coral Health is still allowing people to download two of their apps, Music First and Coral Faith, free during the pandemic. So go to Coral Health, that's C-O-R-O, health.com for information there. And then uh, I want to invite people who are, excuse me, I have my allergies kicking into gear here, and I'm sure some of you can understand that. So I have kind of this frog in my voice, so bear with me here today. Um, I do want to give a shout-out to uh, Brookdale Senior Living. Uh, If you happen to live in Minnesota in the Shoreview-Roseville area, we are doing a support group um, the last Wednesday of each month from 10 to 11. And you can sign up for that by just going to uh, 763-913-913. 6140, or you can also reach out to me and I'd be glad to give you that information. Also, on August 10th, I'll be doing a presentation for Artist Senior Living. This is open to anybody in the world. We're going to do it Zoom. And the topic is called Conscious Compassionate Care for Care Partners. And um, we all need to be able to support ourselves while we're supporting our loved ones or those we care. 
Uh, let's see. I want to give a shout out to the Brain Donor Project. This is a wonderful project. You can uh, just go to braindonorproject.org. Um, we need brains. We need to be able to assess these, and both those that are diseased and those that aren't, in order to move forward um, with diagnosis of dementia and treatment and hopefully a cure. And I just have two more to go. Let's see. Um, on November 2nd, Dementia Together over in the UK um, is going to be doing a conference, and that is a conference by the Dementia Research, uh, Research Charity Brace. And you can find more information on that on alzheimerspeaks.com. We're going to hear from the Footbar Walker, and we'll be right back. Introducing the life-changing Footbar Walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The Footbar Walker revolutionized my care of George. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. The footbar walker opens and closes just like a standard walker. The only thing that is different is the top bar and the footbar. Does that ever make a difference? Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The footbar walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's the thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the footbar walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the footbar walker. Well, that walker I absolutely love, and they have reduced their price on that. So go to thefootbarwalker.com and find more information out on that. It is uh, absolutely fabulous. So um, I also forgot to mention one other thing, and I'm hearing a little echo um, with me, and I have no idea why that is. So, aha, there, we got it to go away. Um, so I apologize for that. <clears throat> um, but I forgot to mention uh, Arthur's Memory Cafe is, uh, is the second and fourth Wednesday of every month, and we're still going virtual on that. And if you want more information, just reach out to me at radio at alzheimerspeaks.com, and I will get that to you. We'd love to have you have you join us. Um, well, let's get to our topic today, opiates, uh, Alzheimer's, and memory loss. We are so lucky to have the author of The Memory Thief, The, uh, the Secrets Behind How We Remember. And Lauren Aguirre is an award-winning uh, science journalist who has produced documentaries, podcasts, short-form video series, interactive games, and blogs for the PBS series NOVA. She has uh, worked there after graduating from MIT. Lauren's reporting on memory has appeared in The Atlantic, The Undark Magazine, The Scientist, The Boston Globe Stat. And I, like I said, I can't wait uh, to have this conversation with her today. Um, her her storyline and her ability to write and decipher complex things for the everyday person is just beautifully done in this book. So welcome, Lauren. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Well, so am I. Before I ask you my line of questions, I always ask everybody if they've been personally touched in their own family or circle of friends, um, you know, by dementia. Yes, my my mother's best friend um, has Alzheimer's. So, um, yes, watching that uh, happen um, certainly um, was was sad and uh, made me much more interested in the topic. Before kind of knowing her, I'd I never really thought about it, and I think that's true for a lot of people. Unless they know someone, it's sort of an invisible disease. Well, I totally agree with you there. You know, you don't know what you don't know, and then when, you know, when it appears, it's like, oh, my gosh, there's so much to learn. Um, and, uh, you know, people are kind of, uh, you know, they kind of step back. I want to ask you about your book and, um, you know, what made you decide to write it? And, and I always like to ask, How'd you come up with the title? Because I always find that really fascinating in and of itself. Um, 
Okay, well, so the memory thief is um, really the heart of the mystery of the book. So um, I think that might that might become clear as, as we talk about the book. Um, what made me interested in it was, uh, first of all, maybe 10 or more years ago, um, before I even came across this story, I had my own experience with memory loss, which was quite sudden um, and fortunately short-lived. But um, I had been having these sort of weird deja vu experiences for months, you know, where you feel like, oh, this exact same thing happened before. Um, but then one morning I had the opposite. It's called jamais vu. And it's like you're suddenly plunged into a world that you don't remember, that you don't recognize. Um, and so this just came on in a matter of seconds. And suddenly I looked around and I didn't know where I was, even though I was in my study. And I, I didn't sort of have any sense of time, even in history. And most frighteningly of all, I didn't know who I was. If you had asked me my name at that moment, I couldn't have told you. And so that was so frightening. Um, and fortunately, it passed quickly. And it turned out this, is a, this was a type of a seizure, um, which I didn't, I didn't know at the time. Um, so then I went, obviously, to the doctor and she said, oh, my gosh, this sounds like a tumor, and um, I got MRIs, and I spoke to a neurosurgeon, and surgeons like to do surgery, and he recommended surgery. So I, I didn't like the sound of that, and I got some second opinions. Um, and one of them was from a neurologist friend named Jed Barish, who later um, became part of the story that I write. And he said, oh, you know, this is really not a big deal. You just need to take medicine every day and you'll be fine. And fortunately, he was right, but it, it definitely left me with kind of a long-standing fascination for strange brains and like mine, and just uh, an appreciation for how frightening it is to lose your memory. Wow. I um, I only had one experience like that, and it was my water heater went up. My brother came over and I'm like a girl with all the tools and stuff. And he's like, oh, give me a plumber's rent. And I didn't know what one was. I mean, I just like blinked. And I went upstairs and I looked and I looked and I looked. And I just like, I I couldn't identify what it was. And I went back down. And I said, Scott, I can't find it. He's like, go look again. He's like, I know you have one up there. And I went up and I looked and I looked. I couldn't find it again. And I go back down with a piece of paper and a pencil. And go, oh, wow. can, you, can you draw me a picture? And oh, he wow. just looked at me so frightened. And it just, you know, and I was under a lot of stress at that time. I had just gotten divorced mm -hmm. and all of that. And and I couldn't find it. He ended up going up and, and finding it. And But it lasted, you know, a very, very short period of time. Everything else I was conscious of and I knew I just couldn't find, I couldn't retrieve that piece. Mm -hmm. And it hasn't happened since. But, oh, my gosh, spooky, spooky yeah. stuff. So yeah. I I can't imagine what you went through. How long did it last for you? Well, I would say a couple of minutes, but you know, it was so frightening. I just I shut my eyes and I lay face down on the floor. Like I just really and I actually had to repaint the room later. The room was mm -hmm. green and it was such a aversive experience that I just painted it white cuz I didn't want to be in that space again. Mhm. Mm Oh, interesting. So, um, yeah, but but as I was saying, so um, one of the people who gave me an informal uh, second opinion, Jed Barish, in 2012, he saw uh, a patient, and he had just started out in his career, who had enterograde amnesia, which is the type of uh, memory loss where you you remember your past, but you can't form any new memories. Mm -hmm. So um, this young man came into the hospital. And no one knew what had happened to him except for the fact that he had overdosed on what he thought was heroin. Um, but this isn't something that is known to happen when people overdose on heroin, that they um, suddenly lose their memory. And when he and the other doctors looked at, at this man's um, MRI scan, they saw a very, very strange pattern, which none of them had ever seen before, which is just the hippocampus, which is the memory center of the brain, and the first part of the brain to be damaged in Alzheimer's disease, just that part of the brain was damaged, very severely damaged, and the rest was unharmed. So this was a very strange thing. Nobody knew what to make of it. 
Um, and, you know, doctors have busy lives and they sort of talked about, let's write this up as a case report. Um, but no one, no one had time. And then a few years later, a man walked into Barish's office for a second opinion with his wife and his mother. And he had uh, two months earlier um, been decided to stay home alone for the weekend while his family went away. And when they came back, he was just like the first patient. He couldn't remember anything new. And, and he couldn't say or didn't say what had happened to him. So he comes into Barish's office, and it turned out that he also had a history of heroin use. And when Barish put the MRI scan into his monitor, up on the screen popped, you know, the exact same image, this very strange damage to the hippocampus. So at that point, it really seemed like the common connection was heroin. Um, but why? You know, why now? Um, people have been using heroin for, for decades, and no one has seen this before. So um, what had changed, at least in Massachusetts, was that starting in 2012, when the first patient showed up, fentanyl was just beginning to make its way into the drug supply in Massachusetts, and people were taking it without knowing they were taking it. And that's a much more potent drug than heroin. So, um, so then Barish reached out to the Massachusetts Department of Public Health, to the state epidemiologist, and said, you know, this is going on, and it can't be just these two people showing up in our hospital. What are the odds that there would only be two in one hospital in, in the whole state? So um, he also got in touch with the CDC, who thought maybe it was a coincidence, um, so he, he kept looking, and he found two more patients, and then the Department of Public Health said, okay, we need to put out a health alert. And within minutes, um, they started getting emails back from other neurologists who said, oh, I've seen this before. Um, so that was the beginning of this story, and um, they ultimately came up with 14 patients who all had this same history, um, and that was published, and that was reported on. I was still at NOVA at the time. So we wrote a, a blog post about it. And at that point, I started going back to Barish and saying, this is really interesting. Like, what else is here? And it, I just decided this was an important story. It's about stigmatized people who um, are probably going under the radar. Um, and it's also a way to explore memory, memory loss, and then, of course, the biggest memory thief of all, Alzheimer's disease. Well, it's it's fascinating, and I'm just thinking of people, uh, you know, with addicts, for example. A lot of them probably don't go to the hospital or to a right. clinic because they probably don't have uh, they don't have coverage. And those that do, you know, chances are they're they're probably going to be looked at, but not go through a battery of tests because again, you, there's that stigma there. Right. Um, which is which is awful um, when you when you think of it in that fashion. Um, yeah. So I, I think it you know the the title of your book really grabs me, and then you know just reading through just a summary of what it's about. I'm like, oh, this is a whole new angle that we haven't talked about. And you know, addiction is on the rise, fentanyl's through the roof. Um, you know, we need to know more about this. And so I think the timing of the book itself is. Is excellent. Um, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, what do you what do you um, expect people to get from your book? Um, so, one of the things I'd like them to get from the book is an understanding of how medical science advances, because you know it, it, it can be so frustrating sometimes. Like, why don't they know the answers? You know, why why don't they understand what's wrong with me? Or if they do. How come they don't know how to cure it? You know, in the case of Alzheimer's, they've been working on this for so long, and um, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of progress. So, which I think actually in the last few years is, is not the case. I think there has been a lot of progress. But, but what stands in the way, and what are kind of the blind alleys that people go down, um, and just why is it so complicated um, to sort out uh, injuries like this and what causes it, and then and then the the case of Alzheimer's that affects so many millions of people around the world. And so, you know, one of the ways 
is to really pay attention to things like this syndrome, which um, although there are almost certainly more people than have come to attention, it's still very rare. But you can also learn interesting things from rare cases because if something new, if you see something new that no one's seen before, it means there's something that we didn't understand about the brain. And maybe that's a way to kind of pry open a window and get a new perspective on, in this case, how the brain works and, and how the hippocampus can be damaged. So one of the um, people that I follow in the book is actually a young man named Owen Rivers who had this tragic injury happen to him. So he became the case study because most of these people have either disappeared or died, um, but he um, he's a very intelligent young man who, after he sort of came out of his initial fog, um, went online and figured out what happened to him by actually uh, reading an article that I had written. And so he got connected with Jed Barish and with other neurologists and said, you know, gee, my injury is so terrible, but maybe I can make some kind of meaning out of my tragedy by helping science and by agreeing to be studied. So, um, so he did that, and they showed that he had lost uh, 10% of the volume of his hippocampus from this injury, which may not sound like a lot, but um, that's as much as a 60-year-old would lose in a decade. And his memory is really on par with someone with pretty advanced Alzheimer's disease. You know, he cannot remember where he parked his car. He can't follow the plot of a movie. Um, you know, he can't remember the details of a conversation that he had the day before. You know, he'll, he'll remember the gist of it, like that it was sad. But he won't remember that, say, his best friend said, my girlfriend dumped me. So, um, and yet despite that, he, he really has found a way to kind of build a meaningful life. Wow. Um, uh, well, uh, you know, we do need people like this to to step in and say it's okay to to study me. Um, otherwise, we're never gonna we're never gonna figure this out. And there's so many twists and and angles. And even though you don't have a lot of numbers, um, you know, and people might poo poo that. It's like you have to start somewhere. And until the conversation is started. And people get comfortable stepping up or even knowing, you know, that there's a, a study or that people are, are, you know, kind of taking this under their wing to look at, um, you know, you're, you're kind of lost. You kind of got to wait until, until there's that knowledge base and that comfort level to go with things. And I know one of the biggest things I hear from researchers is it's hard to get people into studies. Um, right. You know, and the criteria is is really is pretty specific, and and especially if you're dealing with a, you know, a, a population who typically is underserved. You know, all of those types of things come come into play as well with that. So, um, yeah. well, let let me ask you this: What can you explain to our audience? What cause, you know, what is the cause behind Alzheimer's disease? I know there's a lot of different theories out there, and what are your thoughts on it? Well, um, I wish I could say what the cause is. I guess that's the number one reason why, um, you know, we don't, we don't have a, an effective treatment yet. Um, there are a lot of theories, um, but the real problem is, well, first of all, it's a brain disease, and those are always complicated. Um, it's taking place in an aging brain. So there are already things that are going wrong, and there might be multiple things that are going wrong. You know, someone might have some cerebrovascular disease in addition to Alzheimer's disease, or they might have diabetes, which might also be affecting their brain function. So, so there's that. But then probably one of the biggest problems is that the disease process is actually beginning, scientists think, some 20 years before you see any symptoms. And so by the time someone comes to attention, um, whether it's for a study or because they've gone to, their, to see their doctor, whatever launched that event is now buried under all of these other things that have been going wrong as a result of whatever that first trigger was. 
So, you know, the, the kind of reigning theory uh, for many years and the theory that um, was behind the, the recent approval of the Biogen drug is that a toxic protein called amyloid beta is the first thing to go wrong and that it builds up in the brain into these plaques, which can't be cleared. Um, and eventually they get to a point where they're causing the cognitive impairment and cells are dying and they can't communicate with each other. And, and you have inflammation in the brain, which is also not good for you. Um, so that's the theory. That's the cause of Alzheimer's. And there were good reasons to, to think that. I mean, first of all, amyloid beta is one of two sort of defining bad proteins that collect in the brain. The other is called tau tangles. Um, but the very first mouse model that they made of Alzheimer's disease, they made by making it churn out a lot of this amyloid beta. And lo and behold, those mice had problems with memory. And when you clear the amyloid beta junk out of their brain, their, their memory improved, their cognition got better. Another clue that seemed to point to this was that um, people with Down syndrome who have um, two copies of one of the genes behind familial Alzheimer's disease um, are much more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease. Um, so all of these pieces were kind of coming together um, and made, it made a lot of sense. But in 25 clinical trials, not including the recent Biogen trials, targeting amyloid beta and trying to get rid of it, none of them have worked. So, um, so it's clear that something else is going on. And one of the other things that's going on is the other proteins, tau tangles. Um, and those build up in the same place in the brain where uh, the symptoms first appear, which is the hippocampus, also the same place in the brain where these victims of the fentanyl overdose amnesia, where the damage occurs. So tau tangles were sort of ignored until recently, but tau actually tracks much better with the spread of the disease. You can have tons of amyloid beta and not have any cognitive problems. Um, it's only when it meets up with the tau in the memory center of the brain that the trouble really begins. And then tau just takes off and spreads throughout the brain and you get, you get all the other symptoms beyond memory loss. So that's now the target for more clinical trials coming online now. And there's a lot of hope that um, that might be a more effective way to go about it. So amyloid beta is clearly part of the disease, but it may not be the first thing to go wrong. Yeah, I, I I agree. And again, I'm no I'm no researcher or medical clinician um, at all. But just from the the studies that I've seen, like the non studies and things like that over the years, there's been some some contradiction. And there's some you know neat things going on that they're looking at. And you know, there's so many different parts of the of the brain that can be attacked. And you know, it's it's a hard thing to. To know, I mean, I know because I'm in the field now. So many people whose diagnosis has changed from one mode to another, and -hmm. they don't feel like their symptoms have changed, but the definition of the diagnosis has changed. Um, Right. Kind of more, more their feeling than, and you know, one of those times was when a lot of people were originally diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And then later on, they were told it was mild cognitive repair or um, mild mm-hmm. cognitive impairment, and they, they would like, "There's nothing mild about this." <laughs> you, know, you, right. wrong, you got the wrong right. name. This isn't funny. Nothing has changed at my end here, and they felt like people were looking at them differently, like they should be able to do more now that they had this diagnosis. And hmm. so that was, you know, that was a really difficult period for for many, and then others you know, get the mixed dementia, you know, they might have right. uh, a Lewy body and Parkinson's. And, right. um, you know, it, it's just such an ebb and flow and so many unknowns out there. Um, why do you think it's been so difficult to to pin down for a cure? I mean, I kind of look at it like cancer. There isn't mm-hmm. one cure because there's so many different types, but, like, I don't know anything. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just a daughter of a mom who lived with it for 30 oh, years. I beg to differ. I think you know plenty. Um, so, so why is it so difficult? So, 
again, going back to it starts so much earlier. Um, but, you know, I think that there is um, really reason for hope now in the last few years because up until this point, it's been, it's been a big fog because we've been looking at people so late in the course of the disease. And, you know, with no disrespect meant at all to the people suffering from Alzheimer's disease, as, as one researcher put it to me, it's like you're looking at a car accident and, you know, there's all this stuff wrong with the car. It's really hard to tell what happened. And, you know, maybe it was the brake line or maybe it was a flat tire. You know, you don't know. But the reason there's more hope now is that we have so much better tools for figuring out if someone is on the way, potentially, to developing Alzheimer's disease, but very early, even before the amnestic mild cognitive impairment. So there's um, much better brain imaging where they can see not just amyloid beta, but also the tau tangles. There's more genetic information, you know, not just the, the genes that are known to cause it, but sort of the genetic risk, risk scores of, you know, they call them polygenetic risk scores. Um, there are simple blood tests coming online that can look for tau. Um, so they're now getting the right people into the trials. This, this wasn't the case before. Um, they had, you know, in, in some trials, as many as 30% of the participants, you were saying, didn't have Alzheimer's disease. So you're obviously not going to see that this, you know, is an effective drug if 30% of your people don't even have it. Um, so, and they're also doing a much better job in trials with, dividing people up by their genes or by different um, factors so that they can see, well, um, this drug will only work for this subset of people who are going to go on to develop Alzheimer's disease. Because as you say, um, you know, it may be like cancer and there's multiple causes or there's sort of multiple versions of Alzheimer's disease. So the drug that works for one type might not work for another. Yeah, I, I think back to my mom. You know, she lived with uh, symptoms for 30 years, but it took literally almost 10 years for her to get um, a diagnosis. And, you know, the doctor kept poo-pooing it off to menopause, and my mom would say, this ain't my girlfriend's menopause. We talk about uh -huh. this stuff. You know, this is very different. And And she was having, I mean, she was having a, a lot of symptoms in terms of, um, executive function and memory mm -hmm. and, you know, pulled back from driving, um, made a three-ring binder on how to do her job and would carry that back and forth to work because she didn't want to lose mm -hmm. her job. And and yet it was just poo-pooed. So I think, you know, I think doctors are getting more educated. I think we still have a long ways to go. Um, yeah. I also think what's helping is the education awareness and there's a lot more support. So, to me, those three things take away a lot of the scariness and yeah. um, help people step forward. And I think that we still need to focus on even more of that. Um, yeah. You know, and, and I'm talking yeah. from personal experience. I mean, that's what got me in this space was just feeling lost. And, and I still hear today, and I don't know if you, you hear this and say this, and it depends on the doctor, but I still hear the major, majority of doctors are giving a diagnosis with no resources and very little hope in their voice. I mean, their whole the whole delivery of it is sad. And when I've talked with doctors, I mean, they'll be the first to admit going, you know, we don't know how to help them because they're not yeah. necessarily connected in the community or to the resource base there. And, you know, if we could even just shift that, that would be massive in terms of their delivery system, if they felt hopeful or confident or could give them, you know, tools to be able to, even if it's researching on their own, they don't have to fix it. Um, but just having having kind of that base of support. And that, that's one of the reasons um, Dave and I even created Dementia Map was to try to get that so that people can explore on their own. Same with professionals and something that's that's easily accessible. For people, because yeah. I think once you have hope and once you see that there is support, 
Um, and I think of breast cancer. You know, you go in mm-hmm. and there's aromatherapy and you're, all these all these different things are coming into play compared to, you know, 40 years ago when I went and had my first mammogram, you know, it was just you get in there and it's the squeeze machine, you're in and out, you know. There was no soft, fuzzy feeling of support through that process. And yeah. I think we're, we're kind of still in that beginning stages of feeling like it's the squeeze machine, you know, and then, um, but I think it makes such a difference when there is that support base. And so for me, one of my missions is to, I mean, I would love to see a cure. Don't get me wrong, but I think we have to go hand in hand with the care and the education and the awareness um, because to me that. And and please tell me if you think I'm wrong, but that allows more people, I think, to step into the space and say, mm-hmm. hey, I, I will donate my brain or I will get involved in a trial or, you know, this isn't just about a person with dementia. This this is this is all of us here because we don't know when it's going to hit and chances are we're going to be touched one way or the other and you still have to have, you know, the good brain against the bad brain and, um, you know, and what's the effect you know, of care partners and, and, you know, cause there's lots of talk on that too. And there's so many different angles that are being researched right now too, with um, just even the, the um, uh, social aspects, uh, the physical right. aspects that, you know, lifestyle right. things that people can control a little bit more if they, if they know it, it is available to them. So, yeah, um, no, you're so right. I mean, it wasn't a focus of my book at all, but um, you're so right. And that's what I I love about your show. And, you know, when people don't feel like they have any hope, I mean, that's, that's the worst thing. And it's sort of like um, the attitude that, that people took on in the pandemic, like we're in it together. Um, And we do all need to be in it together with Alzheimer's disease and other dementias, because as you say, it's going to touch ourselves or family or friends eventually. And it's only by tackling it as a society rather than kind of shunting people off so that they're out of sight um, that we can make progress. Well, yeah. And I think too, with COVID, I mean, and I know I, I urge people in, you know, senior housing and, and in the dementia realm as a whole, but, you know, I saw a big shift during COVID. And I think a lot of people did where they saw people wanting to step in and step up to help and, and be part. And I, I hope that, you know, companies understand the importance of that and don't let that go by the wayside just because COVID, well, you know, a couple of weeks ago, it seemed under control, <laughs> maybe not mm. so much anymore, but, but um, yeah. to, to really tap into that, that bubbled to the top instead of going back to old ways. Um, right. I think there's a lot more people out there that are interested in helping, that are understanding kind of their power of one and their ability to make a difference. And right. they know that that's important. And But yet they need outlets to be able to tap into that are easily understandable. And that's what I loved about your book because you really, you know, like I said in the intro, you, you really write beautifully and it's just um it's not a scary thing. You know, it's really kind right. of calming your storytelling and, um, you know, and what's going on. And uh, you just did such a such a nice job. I wanted to ask you about um, what you think are some of the interesting prospects for a cure and, and why you think that there's, there's more hope. And I know we kind of touched on um, the amyloid plaques and, and the tau and mm-hmm. things, but... What else are you seeing out there, and, and um, you know, how are you feeling on the on the hope scale? Right. Well, you know, I started researching this book about four years ago, and um, every researcher I spoke with said, you know what, I'm more hopeful now than I was one year, two years. You know, when I was speaking with someone a year ago, they would say I'm more hopeful than I was five years ago. So there was a shift, and um, they said, I'm not just saying this to say it because I'm talking to a journalist. Like, I really feel like even though we don't have the answers yet, we don't know exactly what causes the disease, it's it's no longer a fog. You know, we we know what we need to do to get to the answers. And in the meantime, 
um, there are some really interesting um, approaches to treating Alzheimer's disease, um, some of which I talk about in my book. One of the most fascinating ones uh, is, so there's a brain rhythm called gamma. It's a rhythm that oscillates 40 times a second in your brain, and it's associated with paying attention um, and with basically better thinking. And they discovered that in people with Alzheimer's, that rhythm is weak. So the idea is, can we strengthen that rhythm um, and help memory? And of course, you know, how do you do that? You don't want to stick electrodes into someone's brain. They actually are able to, to strengthen that rhythm just by externally exposing the person to flashing lights or flickering audio. It's called pink noise. It oscillates 40 times a second. It sounds a little bit like white noise. Um, and so those were tested on mice, and they saw their memory got better. The cells in the brain called microglia that, like, clean up all the junk, like amyloid beta and tau tangles, got bigger, and those proteins started being removed from the brain. And as I said, their memory got better. So uh, these are now in phase three clinical trials, these devices. And of course, scientists have cured Alzheimer's many times in mice. They call it Malzheimer's. Um, but if this works, you know, it's a completely non-invasive treatment that would involve like an hour a day of being exposed to this light. So that's one really fascinating approach that is completely different from all of these sort of amyloid beta or even tau tangles trials. Um, another one that I um, focus on in the book, which is also in, in a phase three trial, is um, it's using an off-the-shelf drug, epilepsy drug actually, because there's another feature of Alzheimer's disease that was misunderstood for a long time, and that is the hippocampus, the memory center, gets hyperactive. Um, sort of the neurons are firing too frequently. And you would think, well, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's the brain's way of making up for a weakness. But it actually uh, makes things worse. It makes it harder for you to form good memories. So this is a, an off-the-shelf epilepsy drug, but at a much lower kind of specially formulated dose, which tamps down the hyperactivity. So, you know, early, smaller trials were promising. And again, <laughs> many approaches have been tried and, and many have failed. But this is another one that, that I talk about in my book and that I'm, I'm keeping an eye on. And then there are many other approaches with targeting inflammation, with targeting this clearance of bad proteins, not just specifically the amyloid beta or the tau, but let's just make the brain's housekeeping ability better. Um, and this is sort of in line with sleep, the importance of sleep um, for reducing your risk of Alzheimer's disease. Because when you sleep, it's like a, it's like a wash cycle in your brain and you're, you're rinsing out all the junk. Well, can we, can we um, kind of mimic that with some other drug treatment that helps you clear out all those proteins? And the benefit of that is that if it works, it will also work for a lot of other brain diseases like Parkinson's, um, that feature the accumulation of, of bad proteins, different proteins, but still, you know, uh, proteins that are bent wrong and that really shouldn't be there. Interesting. Yeah, I, I love the, the deal on sleep. I still haven't personally gotten into a good sleep pattern because <laughs> when I get on a roll at night, you know, and I'm I'm single, so I don't I don't have to worry about anybody, and I just kind of go. And uh, sometimes I find I'm I'm still up at three and four in the morning, you know, <laughs> doing work, oh, wow. which isn't good. And um and yet I don't uh, I don't necessarily feel all that tired the next day because I feel productive. But I've been really trying to monitor that much more um, than mm -hmm. what I than what I used to do. And I, I remember uh, Dr. Tianzi saying, you know, he used to pride himself on multitasking and little sleep. And he's like, boy, did I change that pattern, you know, in a, uh -huh. in a flash. I, I haven't been as good in, at making that, that switch. Um, in the book, you know, itself, I wanted to um, ask you a, a couple of things. And that is, you know, you have... Um, well, first of all, your your table of contents and your your chapters, I think you've titled really well and enticing. People wouldn't really think that this is, um, 
you know, based on, on research, you know, when you talk mm-hmm. about broken brains and um, mm-hmm. you talk about um, the hum of the restless beehive and clusters grow and um, maps and memories. Um, and you, you've just done, like I said, I, I can't say enough what a nice job you've done with this with this book. Um, and I think people will find it very informative and yet very comforting and um, inspiring, and uh, I think they'll walk away feeling feeling lifted, you know, with this. So, again, kudos uh, kudos on you. Is there a, a favorite case study that um, just rises to the top, or a, an aha moment talking to a, to one of the doctors or researchers um, that really just stood out that you haven't mentioned yet? Well, you know, going back to hope for Alzheimer's, um, you know, one of the researchers I spoke with actually um, at the University of California, San Francisco, where Owen Rivers went for the case study, um, you know, I said, wow, isn't it just depressing being an Alzheimer's researcher? I mean, so many failures. And he said, "Um, no, it's actually not. It's an inherently optimistic choice to be an Alzheimer's researcher because you, you do it because you figure that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and if you keep on walking, you'll get there. And, um, you know, it, I, I just think that's beautiful, and I also think it, it describes the, the sort of power of hope and the power of optimism um, and, and really gratitude. And that's, that's another interesting thing that they found is that, you know, people who can often be, you know, cognitively resilient, even in the face of, a lot of accumulation of, of bad proteins in the brain or, um, you know, just can live a long time with, with healthy brains, they're often very optimistic. So um, this is not to say that optimism is going to cure everything, um, but it, it is sort of a, a positive note, I think, to end on. Yeah, well, and it sure makes the journey more pleasurable. <laughs> no matter right. what, you're, what you're dealt with, if you can you can see the good in it. And I think even, you know, with, uh, when you mentioned the researchers, I mean, somebody's got to do this work, you right. know, or, or we're just going to keep walking blind through this world, you know, when it comes to this disease. And so, you know, I, I'm, I just am in awe of all of them and all the different types of avenues that are being researched now. I mean, it seems like the, the net has been cast much broader in terms of yeah. what mm-hmm. what might help. And I, I loved when you were talking about the non-evasive ways that are in, you know, um, you know, their third trial study. I mean, that's, that's huge. That's it's huge. huge. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. we're not talking a $56,000 a year. Um, it very, you know, invasive treatment. Yep. Yep. I know we were having a conversation when I, I do a thing called Dementia Chats where I facilitate a conversation with people with dementia. And I said, just give me one one of those $56,000 hunks and watch and see what I can do with that. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. Because there, there's so many other ways that we can also help support uh, people diagnosed and their families on this journey, which, again, kind of gets back to that hope and that gratitude piece. Um, right. When when people can support uh, not only themselves but one another, uh, that's mm-hmm. a that's a huge huge thing. And um, for a whole another show, but I mean I would love to see our medical system change where a diagnosis isn't just focused on a person but actually their team um, right. to help support them. It, that would be um, an incredible shift in paradigm, and I think in in care and hopefully. Uh, lead us to cure in that as well. well Lauren, mm-hmm. this has been a wonderful conversation. Anything that that um, I missed that you want to tell people at all? We've got about ten minutes left, but oh, um, you know, I could I could probably talk for another hour, but um, I, you know, I think um, this has been just a great conversation, and um, I really appreciate you having me on, and I'm I'm so glad you enjoyed the book and and found it informative and, and hopeful. Yeah, I would I would love to see you list this on Dementia Map too. I'll just give them a plug, but we would love to have your your book listed on there if you're if you're up to that. Um there's oh, free I'm, listing on oh, that. Sure. So yeah, I that can send you great. some some information and 
you know, to our listeners, if you, you know, hear of other resources, tools, or products, you know, tell people to get listed on there. That's, that's what it's there for is to help us all have more access. Uh, to the information, products, and tools that we need. Now, if you want to get a hold of Lauren, you can go to her website, which is Lauren, L-A-U-R-E-N, and her last name, Gary, and that is A-G-U-I-R-R-E.com. And she is also on LinkedIn, and her book is on Amazon, and again, it's called uh, The Memory Thief, um, and it is just, like I said, a fascinating book. Um, so I really appreciate uh, your time. If you Do you have um, any social media outlets that you want to mention at all? Or I know sometimes people have Facebook pages or um, Twitter accounts and things like that. Yeah, my Twitter is at L.S. Aguirre. Uh, same okay. spelling, so L S like Sam, A G U I R R E. Okay, wonderful. Well, again, thank you for your brilliant work and uh, taking the time to share with us today. I really do appreciate it very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Great. And for our listeners, uh, you know, please feel free to share this show. That's what they're about. Uh, you know, don't keep. Uh, nuggets that you find a secret. You know, this is about sharing and lifting one another and helping everybody uh, move along this journey and find that that hope and that gratitude that we all need uh, within this. And, you know, maybe you're going to want to check out some trials. Uh, maybe you're going to want to join a support group. Um, maybe you're going to want to read a book. And again, The Memory Thief would be a wonderful one for you. You can always visit our uh, main homepage at Alzheimer's Speaks. Uh, look in the future. We're going to be changing that whole website, making it much easier to maneuver, which I can't wait. And uh, tomorrow we are going to be talking with a death doula. And then on Thursday, uh, we are going to have a wonderful show as well. And we're going to be talking with uh, the founder of Zinnia TV, which really helps people in their end stages when they can't follow a plot. And we've got several guests we're going to be talking to about that. And know that all of our shows, of course, are archived. So feel free to subscribe and pass the word along. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Bye now. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now, this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what could be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire. Become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.